Welcome back, friends, to the audio version of the Convivial Society. This latest installment has been a while in coming, and it's not short. The gist of it is this, thinking with Hannah Arendt about the material dimensions of a common world and the common sense with a view to better understanding our experience of digital culture. I hope you'll find it helpful. I'll note, too, that if you're listening to this through a podcast app, there's more to the newsletter than just the essay. Of course, you likely already knew that. Finally, though, thanks for listening, especially considering that this is a ridiculously low production value operation that I'm running here. Maybe one day I'll throw in some intro music or something. Cheers. Common worlds, common sense, and the digital realm. I've been thinking about tables of late, literally and figuratively. Chiefly, what I've had in mind is the table as an emblem of hospitality and, relatedly, as an example of the material infrastructure of our social lives, or the stuff of life that sustains and mediates human relationships. This owes something, of course, to the great importance Ivan Illich placed on hospitality, especially as it took shape around the table. But here I'm turning to the work of another theorist in order to think through some of the more vexing and at times disturbing features of public life. Thinking about the table has drawn me back to Hannah Arendt's The Human Condition, first published in 1958. This work is notable for Arendt's discussion of the distinctions among what she calls the private, public, and social realms. The political arena of the ancient Greek polis was her model for the public, The private realm was the realm of the household. The social realm was a more recent development. It was the realm of mass society. I won't take the time to explain those distinctions at greater length here, except as they relate to Arendt's use of the table as a recurring metaphor. A metaphor which will, I think, usefully illuminate aspects of our digitally mediated experience. I suspect, in fact, that ultimately it would be useful to develop a fourth category, the digital, to extend Arendt's analysis of the private, public, and social. You might take what follows as some initial thinking toward that end. Arendt's figurative use of the table had tucked itself away in my mind from the time I first read The Human Condition around 2010. It always struck me as an evocative image, but it was not until recently that I began to see more clearly its significance. To live together in the world, Arendt wrote in the paragraph that first caught my attention, means essentially that a world of things is between those who have it in common, as a table is located between those who sit around it. The world, like every in-between, relates and separates men at the same time. So there it is. Our life together is built upon a world of things, which, like a table, gathers and distinguishes us. The point at first may seem somewhat trivial, but we'll find that there's some depth here as soon as we start unpacking Arendt's argument. These lines I just cited appear in the course of Arendt's discussion of the public realm and its relation to the world. Both of these terms, public and world, are technical terms in her work. The term public signifies the world itself, she explains, insofar as it is common to all of us and distinguished from our privately owned place in it. She goes on to clarify that the world is not simply synonymous with the earth, which she thinks of as related to our organic life. The world, in her sense, is related to the human artifact, the fabrication of human hands, as well as to affairs which go on 
among those who inhabit the man-made world together. We might say that the world as she means it is more or less coextensive with what historian Thomas Hughes called the human-built world. It is our cultural habitat, and also what I'm calling the material infrastructure that sustains it. In this light, then, the table is not simply a metaphor. It is a case in point, a microcosm of the larger social order, which itself takes shape around an array of material artifacts. We've already seen that for Arendt, the world of things that constitutes the public is like a table in that it alternatively gathers, relates, and separates individuals. In other words, by virtue of being around a table, a set of individuals are simultaneously related together as a group, while also distinguished from one another. It is a role played by all the elements that make up the material infrastructure of social life. The question we need to bear in mind, of course, is this. How exactly are we being gathered, and how exactly are we being related to one another? The existence of a public realm, Arendt observed, and the world's subsequent transformation into a community of things which gathers men together and relates them to each other depends entirely on permanence. Here we once again encounter the table, or at least what the table illustrates, a gathering and relating of individuals. This gathering and relating function is attributed to a community of things which I'm reading as a network of materiality mediating human relationships. The curious additional insight is the indispensable quality of permanence, a feature that also speaks to a distinct mode of materiality. If the world is to contain a public space, Arendt argues, it cannot be erected for one generation and planned for the living only. It must transcend the lifespan of mortal men. Further on, she writes, the common world is what we enter when we are born and what we leave behind when we die. It transcends our lifespan into past and future alike. It was there before we came and will outlast our brief sojourn in it. It is what we have in common, not only with those who live with us, but also with those who were here before us and those who will come after us. Arendt's insistence on a measure of permanence and stability across time recalls Simone Weil's discussion of a stable ground upon which a human life may be rooted. In The Need for Roots, Weil argued that rootedness was an essential human need, and she added, a human being has roots by virtue of his real, active, and natural participation in the life of a community which preserves in living shape certain particular treasures of the past and certain particular expectations for the future. Like Arendt, Weil's here insisting upon a transgenerational common world, although she is less explicit about its material base. And yes, of course I'll add that Ivan Illich made similar observations. In discussing society's substitution of the better for the good, for example, Illich warns that at this point, the balance among stability, change, and tradition has been upset. Society has lost both its roots in shared memories and its bearings for innovation. Note especially the past-future orientation of that last clause, and perhaps especially the notion of having bearings for innovation, another subject for another day. But one last note on the matter of permanence. 
For Arendt, the permanence of the world of things not only grounds our common experience of the world, but also human identity. The things of the world have the function of stabilizing human life, Arendt wrote, and their objectivity lies in the fact that men, their ever-changing nature notwithstanding, can retrieve their sameness, that is, their identity, by being related to the same chair and the same table. But let's turn now to the epistemic implications of Arendt's notion of a common world. The world of things turns out to have important psychological and epistemological functions in Arendt's analysis. And this is where I think her line of thinking gets really interesting. We might say that Arendt takes the world of common things to be an epistemic backstop that keeps us from sliding into pure subjectivism, nihilism, or egoism. As we'll see in a moment, a world of common things grounds a common sense. So for example, she writes, the presence of others who see what we see and hear what we hear assures us of the reality of the world and ourselves. And while the intimacy of a fully developed private life, such as had never been known before the rise of the modern age and the concomitant decline of the public realm, will always greatly intensify and enrich the whole scale of subjective emotions and private feelings, this intensification will always come to pass at the expense of the assurance of the reality of the world and men. The inverse correlation, she posits, between an intensification of subjective emotion and private feeling on the one hand, and an assurance of the reality of the world on the other seems particularly striking given present concerns about the degree to which Americans appear to have not only conflicting beliefs, but to live in alternate realities. Please note that I refer specifically to Americans, not to suggest that something similar isn't happening elsewhere, but only that I feel that I can speak to the case here in a way that I would not presume to speak about other societies, especially since so many of you are better positioned to do just that. And international listeners, please do feel free to fill me in on the situation on the ground as you see it. But where does the world of things fit into this picture? Arendt speaks here of the presence of others, yes, but also of the decline of the public realm, which she has already equated with the human-built world that sustains it, or, to put it another way, that acts as the stage upon which the public appears. In other words, she has in view the presence of others within a particular, materially objective context. Arendt argues that to live an entirely private life means, above all, to be deprived of things essential to a truly human life. She expands on this by explaining that it means that one is deprived of the reality that comes from being seen and heard by others, to be deprived of an objective relationship with them that comes from being related to and separated from them through the intermediary of a common world of things. Here again is the notion of being gathered and separated by the common world of things with an emphasis on an objective relationship with others. Of course, it is not the nature of reality itself that is at issue here. Rather, Arendt has in view our experience of reality, or to put it another way, the measure of certainty that we attain from knowing that we inhabit a shared reality with others. We see and hear and are seen and heard in turn, and somehow the intermediation of the common world of things is essential to this dynamic. 
This certainly does not at all preclude vigorous and intense disagreement about what is good, right, and just, but it does suggest that it is possible for such debates to unfold meaningfully within shared horizons of the real. And this is what Arendt understands as common sense, which she calls the sixth and highest sense. Common sense is not just a set of mundane observations that are widely assumed to be true. Rather, it was common in the sense that it was the product of the senses working in tandem on a world held in common with others. Only the experience of sharing a common human world with others who look at it from different perspectives, she wrote, can enable us to see reality in the round and to develop a shared common sense. However, in the modern world, Arendt argued, common sense became an inner faculty without any world relationship. This sense now was called common, she added, merely because it happened to be common to all. What men now have in common is not the world, but the structure of their minds. And that is a critical point, aptly stated. Moreover, she observes that a noticeable decrease in common sense in any given community and a noticeable increase in superstition and gullibility are therefore almost infallible signs of alienation from the world. Again, she does not mean alienation from the earth, but alienation from a common world of human things that constitutes a public space of appearance within which a common sense can take hold and bind individuals to a commonly shared reality. This alienation marked by a decrease in common sense is not inconsequential. Not only might it be paired with superstition and gullibility, but with darker and even destructive proclivities. Consider the following analysis from The Origins of Totalitarianism, in which Arendt takes up the question of what we would label escapist literature. She attributes the desire to escape reality, which in her view characterizes the masses, to their essential homelessness, which I read as more or less synonymous with what she later calls world alienation in the human condition, and with what they termed rootlessness. But Arendt believes that the human need to make sense of things is also a factor. Deprived of its share in a common world that persists across time, a person can no longer bear reality's accidental, incomprehensible aspects. Thus, she argues, the masses' escape from reality is a verdict against the world in which they are forced to live and in which they cannot exist since coincidence has become its supreme master, and human beings need the constant transformation of chaotic and accidental conditions into a man-made pattern of relative consistency. I've come back again and again to the relationship Arendt drew between loneliness and totalitarianism. Arendt made a point of distinguishing between solitude and loneliness, noting that one may be alone without being lonely and that loneliness often occurs in the midst of others. Interestingly for our purposes, Arendt connects loneliness to the loss of a common world. Loneliness arises when thought is divorced from reality, she observed, when the common world has been replaced by the tyranny of coercive logical demands. Quoting Martin Luther, she adds, a lonely man always deduces one thing from the other and thinks everything to the worst. Without a common world, 
there is no break, then, on the slide into slavish and despairing ideological consistency. In other words, without a common and stable world of things to ground our experience with others, without the table around which we might gather, the mind is cut off from a common sense and set loose upon itself in ways that become self-destructive. Thus, in The Origins of Totalitarianism, she also makes the following argument. Totalitarian propaganda can outrageously insult common sense only where common sense has lost its validity. Before the alternative of facing the anarchic growth and total arbitrariness of decay, or bowing down before the most rigid, fantastically fictitious consistency of an ideology, the masses probably will always choose the latter and be ready to pay for it with individual sacrifices. And this is not because they are stupid or wicked, but because in the general disaster, this escape grants them a minimum of self-respect. Now, along with totalitarian propaganda, let us also include conspiracy theories, and the relevance of this analysis will be all the more apparent. The loss of a common world and the common or communal sense it sustains engenders not only heightened subjectivity, but also leaves individuals susceptible to propaganda, conspiracy theorizing, and loneliness. I've belabored the exposition of Arendt's argument, so let me draw things to a close by speaking more directly to our present media environment. What especially interests me is the degree to which our digital media environment differs from the older analog order of things, specifically with regards to its role in sustaining a common world and public life. I'm sometimes tempted to speak of this difference as a move from a material order to an immaterial order, but I realize that this is not quite right. After all, digital media is a thoroughly material reality built on tubes, cables, satellite servers, and rare earth metals mined at great human cost, none of which are any less material in nature simply because they are ordinarily hidden from public view. Nevertheless, it is important to account for how digital media reconfigures the material infrastructure of social life such that the dynamics of human experience are also transformed. And a good deal of this transformation involves the scrambling of the relationship between bodily presence and action. What happens, for example, when important segments of our life together no longer emerge within a world of common things we simultaneously occupy? In other words, what are the consequences of a social life increasingly dependent on varieties of telepresence? Tele, as you remember from some long-ago middle school vocabulary lesson, is the Greek root that means far or distant and suggests operating at a distance. Consider three common words, telegraph, telephone, television. Writing at a distance, voice at a distance, sight at a distance, respectively. Each of these is a mode of telepresence, and, as the example of the telegraph suggests, telepresence is not uniquely tied to digital media. Digital media, however, has permeated our experience with telepresent activity. Early debates about the internet were sometimes framed by an opposition of digital activities to so-called real life. This was never a very helpful framing, as sociologist Nathan Jurgensen spent a great deal of time explaining several years ago. It seems to me that we would have better spent our time 
had the question of telepresence framed our discussions. Is this real now seems to me to have been a far less interesting question to ask than, where am I? When we gather, as we so often do now on a service like Zoom, where are we? Where exactly is the interaction happening? And what difference does it make, say, that there is no here we can easily point to, and much less is there a table? What sort of world is this that now hosts so much of our social life? And how might we distinguish it from the world of common things that, for Arendt, was so important to public life, and, as we saw, even to our grasp of a shared reality? It seems apparent that the digital realm lacks the permanence that Arendt thought was essential to a common world in which individuals could appear and be seen, and also that it has accelerated the liquidification of modern life. Consequently, it fails to stabilize the self in the manner Arendt attributed to a common world of things. It also seems that Arendt's fears about the epistemic consequences of the loss of a common world of things were well grounded. By abstracting our interactions into a placeless world of symbolic interchange and generating the conditions of what Jay Bolter has labeled digital plentitude, digital media appears to undermine rather than sustain our capacity to experience a common world, which in turn generates a common sense. Increasingly then, we come to suspect that we are all occupying altogether different realities. There are, of course, many more questions to be asked about how digital tools transform human experience. But reckoning with the seeming worldlessness, in a rent sense, of the digital realm, and its abstraction of experience from bodily presence, may help us better understand some of the challenges we face as we seek to wisely navigate this digital of course, in Arendt's view, mass society and the realm of the social it generated already tended in some of these directions. In a memorable paragraph, Arendt describes the experience of the table under conditions of mass society. The public realm, as the common world, gathers us together and yet prevents our falling over each other, so to speak. What makes mass society so difficult to bear is not the number of people involved, or at least not primarily, but the fact that the world between them has lost its power to gather them together, to relate and to separate them. The weirdness of this situation resembles a spiritualistic seance where a number of people gathered around the table might suddenly, through some magic trick, see the table vanish from their midst so that two persons sitting opposite each other were no longer separated, but also would be entirely unrelated to each other by anything tangible. At first glance, this is not a bad way of conceiving the digital realm. The materiality of the table suddenly vanishes, and in our telepresent interactions we begin to fall over ourselves, as it were, chaotically clashing with each other, even as we are ensconced within our respective epistemic bubbles. But unlike the members of mass society, we are at a further, or at least different, remove from one another, confronting not embodied presences, but something more akin to subjectivities variously represented by images and avatars. Finally, I'll note that we cannot replicate the agora, the public space of the ancient Greeks, which so deeply informed Arendt's view of the public realm. 
to the degree that we are connected politically with each other at a much different geographic scale than the ancient Greek city-state. To that same degree, we cannot replicate the ancient public sphere. In that ancient model, however, the public and the private sustained one another if they were rightly ordered. Mass society, in Arendt's view, scrambled the private and the public realms, robbing each of their particular virtues. It did so by gradually eroding the local and material context of the public realm. I wonder if we might not reimagine a new pairing, not the private and the public, but the digital and the local. I'm not exactly sanguine about this possibility, mind you. It seems to me that the tendency of the digital realm, as it is presently configured, tends toward the erosion of the local, which I tend to think is the natural habitat of the human being, and thus the proper site of human flourishing. However, it may be possible for digital tools, perhaps if they were designed with a view to conviviality, to also sustain a vibrant local realm, which may nourish the human experience and ground our necessary ventures in the digital public. Perhaps I'm glossing over irreconcilable tensions, but I'll be coming back to these themes and I'd be happy to hear your thoughts.